You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Today's discussion was recorded recently at a Baltimore SOCAP 365 and is about inclusive community development through the lens of opportunity zones. There's been a lot of discussion recently about the new opportunity zone legislation and the challenges associated with the implementation of the new law. The New York Times ran a front page story a couple days ago about how it was really just a tax windfall for the rich. and. We covered a lot of those challenges in depth with the Kresge Foundation a few weeks ago on this podcast. But I I think in the context of today's discussion, Opportunity Zones could really serve as a proxy for any sort of top-down community development initiatives. The conversation is more about how impact investors can design with communities instead of for them. And to paraphrase our moderator, Pickett Slater Harrington, how he can connect some of the, the great bottom-up community development work being done in these communities with some of these big top-down funding initiatives. Pickett, our moderator, is the founder and managing principal of Joltage, a social change agency that works to scale some of these great locally-driven initiatives and enterprises. Joining him on the panel to provide the perspective of these local organizations, we have Candace Chance from B-City, which is the Baltimore City Intergenerational Initiatives for Trauma and Youth, and John Brothers from the Baltimore Children and Youth Fund. From the policy side is Ben Siegel, the City of Baltimore's Opportunity Zones Coordinator. And providing a funding perspective, we have Elise Liberto from Brown Advisory, an investment management firm. Let's jump into the conversation. I'll share a a little bit before we um, go to our panelists about my story. And the work that I do is really about bridging communities and institutions. A lot of times it's a disconnect between the institutions and communities. Uh, Within communities, there's this deep lived experience and knowledge and wisdom and desire and action and capacity. But sometimes it's never connected to those resources. So a lot of my work is trying to bridge those gaps. Um, I do have the privilege of working on a project, Lexington Market. You know, Lexington Market is one of the oldest continuously operating markets in the country, 230 years. And I'm working with the chosen developer, Seawall, to kind of think about how do you engage the community of Baltimore in developing a vision for Lexington Market. The city owns Lexington Market. Um, They're investing $40 million in its uh, redesign and transformation. And it serves as a food access hub, a way of generating wealth for communities, and a community gathering space, but the market belongs to the community of Baltimore. So we have to figure out what that vision is. So it's an example of how we might go about developing community wealth and generating community wealth, but we have to get creative in how we think about it, and it has to be designed with communities. So I want to take this time to like have my panelists introduce yourself and tell a little bit about your journey story uh, kind of how you got into this work and kind of what you do. And we're going to take maybe about two minutes uh, for each person. And so we're going to start here with Ben. 
Well, thank you, Pickett. So again, uh, my name is Ben Siegel, and I am with the Baltimore Development Corporation, where I am serving as Baltimore City's first Opportunity Zones Coordinator, and from what we believe, the first Opportunity Zones Coordinator in the country. And just a quick thanks, because we've got folks here from the ABLE Foundation. They are supporting uh, the, uh, my work at, at BDC. So uh, in terms of how I got where I am, I'll, um, I won't start at the very beginning, but I will say, um, Kind of what, what put me on this trajectory to where I am now, I think like a lot of folks who are trying to do good work in Baltimore City, is uh, Freddie Gray. So, you know, in, in 2015, I was working in the Obama administration for Tom Perez at the Department of Labor. Um, after the uprising here in Baltimore, the, uh, the White House put together a federal task force made up of about 15 federal agencies and several White House offices uh, to work directly with the city of Baltimore to try to bring more resources here uh, to invest in, in um, especially uh, more efforts that could deal with some of the root causes uh, of the uprising. And so I was um, lucky enough to be tasked to lead that team. And, you know, the focus of our team, well, obviously it was, it was immediately about, you know, Freddie Gray and the events, um, was also very much driven by research that came out uh, two weeks after the uprising by Raj Chetty. And um, he's an economist now at Harvard. And what his research showed is that Baltimore City is the worst city in the country for upward mobility uh, for poor children, ranked 100 out of 100 of large cities and, and counties. And so that very much drove the work that we were doing through our White House task force to figure out, you know, how can we, you know, bring more investment into the city, not just in terms of financial assistance, but um, also technical assistance and partners and capacity. And so the, um, the work the White House is very focused on that. You know, we were able to bring in about 150 million additional funding uh, resources into Baltimore City. It, it funded programs like the One Baltimore for Jobs program. Um, it's helped to support some of the new P-TECH programs at a couple of high schools across the city, uh, and, and there's a bunch of other examples, but very much focused on, um, on youth. And so through that work, um, that, you know, then led me to, uh, you know, really be committed to Baltimore City and to see how, you know, some of these seed funding, you know, programs that we started through this White House initiative, you know, could be taken to scale. And I went from there uh, to Johns Hopkins University, where I led an initiative called the 21st Century Cities Initiative. And we at the initiative were very focused on inclusive development, place-based initiatives. And, and one of the things that we spent a lot of time on with that initiative was looking at small business financing in Baltimore City. So we did a number of studies, both on the lending side and the venture capital side in Baltimore, um, and, and really uncovered, uh, in general, uh, a lack of um, investment coming into Baltimore City, um, both from the banking side and to a lesser extent from the venture capital side, although the story there is pretty good, but I think as many people might know, it's pretty limited to a certain type of business, uh, you know, within Baltimore City. And so, um, you know, what I kind of took out of that work is, is again, you know, this, this kind of angle of addressing some of the many challenges you talked about, by figuring out how do we how do we bring more investment into Baltimore City? I mean, it doesn't make sense, you know, given our geographic location, uh, given kind of our economic foundation here, uh, given you know some of the strengths of the city. Why is capital not flowing 
more into the city, um, you know, nationally. And so I, at that point, kind of while I was at Hopkins, I got into this whole opportunity zones thing. Um, like many folks, I was skeptical and I still am their skepticism, but, you know, I also saw it as a way where, you know, this is, this is a new approach to, um, to capital attraction. And, you know, if we can be like a first mover on this in Baltimore, uh, you know, maybe we can get to a point where we can bring in more capital that hasn't come before. So while I was at Hopkins, we, we did some research, we were doing some work on Opportunity Zones, and then when the thing became real, we put out a little paper with some recommendations on what Baltimore City should be doing to take full advantage of Opportunity Zones. Uh, one of those recommendations was having a full-time liaison to kind of coordinate a strategy. And so I was then approached by City Hall to say, hey, like your paper, will you be that full-time liaison? <laughs> so uh, that's where I ended up where I am. And, um, you know, and, and kind of my role now is very much on the front lines, you know, working with investors nationwide uh, who haven't looked at Baltimore before or who have looked at Baltimore but have only looked at Port Covington and downtown and to get them to figure out and to look at, you know, all of the opportunities, you know, certainly across our 42 opportunity zones, but also citywide and where, you know, they can make investments that can have financial returns, but can also have community impact at the same time. Thank you. And we look forward to hearing more about the Opportunity Zones. Candice. Good morning. Good early morning to everyone. Um, so I think just my whole life has really groomed me to this point. Um, school has given me some of the, the language and how to talk about this work. Um, and then experiences after school really saw how the kind of the theories from school, what that looks like in practice, and that some of those theories are not necessarily relevant to my community or need another lens or another way to think about it. Um, so I think that that's how I got to where I am um, in my work with B-City. I think that was a natural progression um, with what I know is possible for Baltimore. So B-City stands for Baltimore City Intergenerational Initiative for Trauma and Youth. And we were awarded a multi-million dollar federal grant to address resiliency in communities after stress and trauma. And that's been um, a completely community-led process. And I'm not just throwing that term out there just because it's a hot topic. But we truly have done that work. So yeah, I think um, this work is not really something I, uh, it's just something that's in me. I don't know how else to explain that. Um, you know, my, this is my life's work. Uh, what I do with the VPI firm is around deep listening and how do we use, how do organizations and businesses use deep listening to align their strategies and align their initiatives with the collective voice and experience of its constituents. And so a lot of that work informs the work that I do with B-City and vice versa. Thank you, Candice. Elise? Yeah, hi, my name is Elise Liberto, and I work on the private investment research team at a firm called Brown Advisory. It's a global investment management firm, but actually founded and headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland. And how I got here is I joined the firm at a time when Brown Advisory really started thinking more about the next generation of its clients, and very practically that in a lot of instances meant the children of family relationships at the firm. But I'd say more interestingly, and in more cases than not, it was just more holistically thinking about the fact that private clients now care more about what their capital is being put to work into than just the absolute return that it can generate. And I was lucky enough to help start building out what we call our private impact investment platform at Brand Advisory. So making recommended investments 
that we believe are the highest risk-reward profile, but within an impact vertical. And the challenge of that work definitely has been that impact means something different to everyone, but it's a challenge and an opportunity to be looking for those mission-aligned goals or themes that seem to resonate across a wide variety of our client base. And I'd say something that's been repeated and kept on coming up in our discussions was this interest in putting money back in the communities from which our clients came, this idea of place-based investing. And so in the end of 2017, and probably more realistically, the second half of 2018, when Treasury provided guidance on the opportunities and legislation that Ben referred to and will be speaking about, our firm really took notice and thought this could be a really interesting way to A, scale private investments, and B, make a positive social impact in the communities that our clients, our colleagues, and collaborators around the cities we work in really care about. But unfortunately, what we saw was the majority of groups that were coming to market were raising large, nationally-focused funds that seemed to predominantly be focused on real estate plays that weren't serving a community need. And Brian Advisor really identified a need to develop a new solution that would invest alongside the economic goals that I think Ben will be touching on later in the presentation. So we sought to partner with an individual that had true credible experience in community building as well as private market investing. And we partnered with an individual named Ross Baird, who was the founder and president of a VC impact-oriented investment firm called Village Capital. And we created a joint venture called Blueprint Local to really invest in these communities that we know and care about. So I'm excited to share that strategy with you all today. Thank you, Elise. John? Uh, so my name is John Brothers. I was raised... Uh, my mom is a, was a community organizer, and so I was raised in the basements of churches for most of my life, and, um, and then myself became a community and political organizer early in my career, um, and then transitioned to uh, what I saw in my community were uh, 400 organizations all aiming to help me and my poor neighbors grow out of poverty, and every year my neighborhood got poorer and poorer, and for me, what I saw was with my skill set is that the organizations in my community were just not strong enough to be able to sustain and maintain uh, the work that they were doing. And so I created a, uh, a firm that uh, worked on building the capacity uh, of nonprofits that for the first seven years of its existence was we and, me and my wife, um, and then the last eight years of its existence uh, doubled in size. And so at the end, we had around 95 employees and uh, an office in the UK and DC and in New York. Uh, and so that caused me to travel 250 days of the year, and, and I have an amazing wife and two awesome kids and, and wanted to be uh, equally as awesome in that role, and so decided to sell, uh, sell my firm. And I had been also a professor at NYU for about a decade, and so they, I guess they called me a pracademic, which is a fancy word for somebody that just nerds out on uh, social impact, so, or at least in my end. So anyway, so we sold my firm, and uh, my... Uh, section of the firm had been working with um, state governments and philanthropy on how to be more effective and was approached by some family foundations and um, and that wasn't for me but my name got to Tiro and, um, and and found myself here and I ultimately ended up moving here during the week of uh, of the unrest and uprising um, depending on who you talk to they use different words for that but uh, from my end um, since that time, I've only really seen just the amazingness in Baltimore, and it's been great. And I think on every given day, I'm using my experiences as an organizer. I'm using my experiences as a pracademic. I'm using my experiences as, uh, as a small business and larger business owner uh, to, to try to work within a global company, to use all the assets of a global company to make 
uh, community better. And so that's our aim. Right. Thank you, John. And if you can share a little bit about the Youth Fund, how it came to be, and kind of what it exists to do. Ultimately, the Youth Fund was putting together 34 individuals with a task force um, to think about how they use this um, funding stream that comes from a percentage of property tax every year into a fund. It essentially is the third largest foundation in the city instantly. And so if you can imagine creating a foundation with public funds on the spot, the process that you would need to make sure that that felt community owned is ultimately unbelievably important. And so the how of how that was done and uh, was really important. And so we, uh, these 34 members were selected, represented all different sections of, of civic life in Baltimore, including young people, uh, nonprofits, government, uh, community-based organizations, activists, all these different folks. Um, and that, that's not unique. We've seen that kind of done before. I think for Adam and I, where it became really important to course correct was at the first meeting. We had a, a scheduled to have a series of eight community meetings. And we were sitting there, and there were 34 members at a table at, at Humanum, and 100 people in the crowd FaceTime living, uh, living it. And, and we were like, this seems weird to videotape a community meeting, right? So we instantly said that the everyone in the room is part of the process. Um, and we've spent the first two meetings talking about what are the values by which this group will operate what is important to how we do this work. Um, and there were folks that were nervous because we're going to, you know, we had limited number of meetings. There were 10 meetings scheduled, and we're going to spend two meetings talking about how we're going to do the work. And there were certainly folks that had been at the table that had been part of a number of community processes that were like, man, we're going to be here until rapture. And so, um, but ultimately, we went through a, a really meaningful discussion about what the how of how we're going to connect, what's important, that we're doing this work from a racial equity lens, that young people have to be important, that this has to be rooted in community. We came up with a number of values that ultimately the rest of the process went much more smoothly because we had done that work. And so there were two phases to the work. I was leading the grant making section because I lead a foundation and it might make sense to do that. And we actually thought that that was going to be the juiciest part because there was certainly lots of discussion in Baltimore about how capital is moved, where philanthropy is, pluses and minuses and things like that. Um, and that actually, that process was, uh, was much quicker than the process of what is the infrastructure of the organization that ultimately would lead the, and be the youth fund, which is still uh, still in that process right right now. Uh, and lots of discussion from community about who leads it, what that looks like. I think as we sit here and look now at this, um, if you look across the national landscape, there isn't anything really like the youth fund in the way that it's designed and how it's going to be done. And it is in its sec starting its second year. And so uh, the idea behind this is how do we how do we create and that task force is what their responsibility was is to create the right structural foundation to ensure that the youth fund moving forward a decade from now two decades from now is operating from the lens uh, that was created by um, by that task force and so as I sit here right now certainly um, you know and I think Danielle would say lots of really great highs on that and and certainly some challenges um, as well it's a public fund. Uh, and certainly, when you create a public fund, there's challenges, right? But as we sit here right now, the experiment of the youth fund, I, I would give uh, uh, a lot of credit to it maintaining the core of what the uh, task force set out.
when you think about the, the U fund, right, it's a, a great example that's happening here locally of how, you know, public government and community are kind of collaborating uh, to support young people, but also deal with the issue of, of kind of wealth building as well. Um, but I also want to kind of juxtapose what you just said about this kind of public fund that we have and also the private side of that, um, working with Brown Advisors. And I think um, is the blueprint that you mentioned as a particular fund. So kind of what is blueprint? What is it designed to do and how does it kind of connect back to building community wealth? Yeah, definitely. And maybe should I kick it to Ben first to give a quick overview of what Opportunity Zones are? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that would be not, great. Not yep. <laughs> Since it's connected, no, thank that's you. Okay. Yeah, so Blueprint Local is one of these qualified opportunity funds um, that is uh, regulated by this Opportunity Zones legislation. So let me just give the quick primer on what Opportunity yep. Zones are. They are kind of the, the next generation of um, federal community development investment tools slash incentives. And they're very different from what we've seen in the past. And so, you know, for uh, kind of the traditional approach to place-based types of investments like enterprise zones, empowerment zones, it's all based on tax credits, right? So we all know about new markets tax credits, low-income housing tax credits. These are initiatives where the federal government um, allocates a certain amount of um, tax credits to uh, specific types of organizations that can then use those to, uh, you know, work with financial institutions to invest in community projects, right? Opportunity zones are, are very different. So what they are about is straight up investment in the form of equity. So in this case, we're using equity as ownership investment as opposed to equity as we've been traditionally using it here um, in, in terms of inequality related issues. But it's, it's equity investments by private market investors, right? So folks like Brown Advisory, um, folks like you and I in the room, if we have what the key is, capital gains to recognize, right? So the, the theory behind Opportunity Zones is that there's an estimated $6 trillion in capital gains in the U.S. that is quote unquote sitting on the sidelines, right? And so this means that this is money, $6 trillion that investors have in the form of stocks, um, that investors have in the form of property, any other type of kind of tangible asset that can be uh, liquidated and invested into communities. And so the idea behind this is, what if the federal government created a ridiculously uh, beneficial uh, incentive uh, to get investors who have the ability to recognize these capital gains to take those gains and invest them into uh, impactful community projects. And, and then one of the things just to say at the outset is that the original legislation, the original idea had a whole set of programming uh, related to opportunity zones. But because it was included in the tax bill, all of the policy components and a lot of what we're talking about, you know, these days about some of the challenges with opportunity zones around accountability, around monitoring, around impact measurement kind of fell by the wayside. So what was left over in the law was simply the tax benefits, right? And the way that this works, so here's how opportunity zones work, is that, as I mentioned, an investor has to recognize capital gains. So they have to sell their stock, they have to sell their property, have a, um, uh, a place where they've got a capital gain recognition, and they have to take those gains, and within a six-month period, they have to put the gains into 
what's called a qualified opportunity fund. Now, a fund is something that you and I can create. It's self-certified, self-regulated. We establish an LLC, some type of business partnership. We create our fund. We associate a bank account with our fund. And then we can put our capital gains into that account. So individuals can do this who have capital gains, um, as well as institutions, obviously. Um, banks can do it. Hedge funds can do it. Um, insurance companies can do it. And so um, once these funds are created, the, the fund manager, who's ever kind of leading that fund, then has generally in that tax year um, to deploy 90% of the capital in that fund into eligible projects in designated opportunity zones. So here in Baltimore City, we have 42 opportunity zones. An opportunity zone is a census tract. Um, nationwide, there's 8,700 of these, right? So there's 42 in Baltimore City, there's 149 in the state of Maryland. For a census tract to have been eligible, it must meet the, the same income requirements as new markets tax credit. So either a 20% poverty rate or 80% area median income or below on average in the census tract. They then have to invest in projects in these census tracts. And the projects can be real estate, they can be operating businesses, they can be a combination thereof. Um, there's a lot of flexibility in what can be invested in. Really the only um, uh, kind of types of investments that aren't allowed are quote unquote sin businesses. So liquor stores, racetracks, um, tanning parlors, that type of thing that's on the sin business list. Um, you know, just in, in conclusion, I mean, what we're focused on is in Baltimore City, we've got 42 of these opportunity zones. And there's a market that's really kind of forming right now. It's, we're still very much in the early stages. You know, the law went into effect January 1st, 2018. The regulations are still being developed by Treasury. So there's still a lot of open questions, especially as it relates to investment in businesses. Um, and so right now, what, what we're seeing is that you've got a lot of these funds across the country that maybe they're real, maybe they're not real. Uh, you've got family offices, other types of investors, you know, looking at how to get into the game here. And what we want to do in, in Baltimore is to be as organized and proactive as we can be in engaging these opportunity funds in understanding the marketplace and trying to understand what they're looking to invest in and to help educate them on you know what the you know opportunities can be here in Baltimore um, and then to, to take full advantage yeah. of that. Thank you Ben for that, that that overview and one of the things that I, I kind of understood uh, from from that was if you know opportunity zones are really the catalyst to get folks to kind of invest in the mechanism but really like what it looks like on the ground are these funds that are created and then those funds kind of invest in, in, in projects within communities. And I think uh, at least in one of those is, is the Blueprint Fund. If you can kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So glad Ben went first and just kind of talking also about the flexibility of the legislation. And I think he touched on it as well, but it is a huge incentive. And you can understand how it's also incenting capital that actually doesn't care about the social impact goals of why the legislation was actually developed. And I mentioned this in the introduction, but you saw a lot of groups very quickly after it was passed raising huge sums of capital, claiming to invest in communities they didn't know or care about or have boots on the ground in. You can just see how that could be an effect for long term there being a misalignment of incentives of investor versus what the community really needs. So we as a firm didn't feel comfortable recommending any of the external solutions we saw in the market. 
and as I mentioned, partnered with a third party to create what we thought would be a new solution, looking to create very transparently a returns-focused strategy, but operating within an impact framework that was aligned with the social impact goals that EIG lined out when they first created the legislation. And so how do we do that? You know, what is Blueprint Local? It is a management company, so a holding company for separate place-based opportunity zone funds that were being raised around communities where we knew we had boots on the ground, individuals that knew the local needs dynamics of communities, and we felt confident that we could create pools of capital that would invest by the right incentives for the local individuals and constituents. So we've raised two funds to date. The first fund, Blueprint Texas, is a fund focused on the Austin-San Antonio corridor. And the second fund, Blueprint Baltimore, is being raised right now. So both funds are focused on discrete areas where we're building local teams. And the investment strategy, very different from if you Google Opportunity Zones and what you'll see has been put to work to date for, for some of the reasons Ben mentioned as well. Actually, one of the interesting differentiators is we're focusing on a combination of both real estate and operating companies. You really need to be have that investment in the infrastructure of the real estate. Then you also need long-term to be investing in the companies that are going to be creating jobs and creating economic opportunity, as opposed to a real estate project that ultimately could serve other groups as well. And the way we are thinking about this is focusing on community nodes. So investing in a number of investments around somewhat of a street corner approach the idea is to be transformational in a cluster of investments as opposed to being transactional of one company over here versus one company over there that can't share in the synergies of an ecosystem that comes with you know, one community that's focused on recruiting and maintaining talent that has individuals coming through that could provide mentorship, really focusing on that clustering effect of quality infrastructure as well as multiple company investments to create these nodes of density where you could really see a case for growing economic opportunity in a certain discrete area. And one of the things we talked about was just you know, how, how do you engage communities? How do you do this thoughtfully? And I think we're gonna talk about this a lot and I think there's a lot of shared perspectives on, on the panel. But I'll just finally mention with it really starts, we think from building a team that is local, someone who knows the city intimately, has trust with the community, is able to really be a liaison to community needs before any investment dollars are put to work. I think that's something that you haven't seen from, from other funds that have come to market to date. And I think it's critical to building teams that are one, local in nature, know the unique needs and dynamics, two, are representative of the local community that you're investing in so you can build trust and really understand that group. And third, is also having a group of individuals that have expertise in the skill set of a region. We're actually just at the ABLE Foundation the other day talking about Baltimore specifically for a city, a state that has so much expertise in healthcare, deep science from Maryland, UMBC, Hopkins, you need to have someone on that team that can diligence what are going to be the strengths of your local city, as well as other complementary skill sets for other types of interesting companies that may or may not be coming out of the area. So I think that that's where we really started of trying to build local teams, be very focused on place as opposed to any national allocator model, because I think that's how you build genuine credibility with the community and are able to make a real transformative difference over the long term. Thank you. And, and so it sounds like, you know, Blueprint is really focused on kind of impact and social impact and kind of taking, you know, opportunity zones and that incentive and then focusing towards kind of the social good or social impact kind of realm. So, so thank you. Um, Candice, um, if you could talk a little bit, because I, I think, you know, you, like B-City is a perfect example of kind of social impact, but kind of from a community perspective and investment from a community perspective, if you can talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, so um, our pro just to talk about our process, um, the, the funding that became available was national funding. So the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration put out this recast funding, which was to support cities in getting funding to address resiliency in communities after an uprising. So Baltimore City, we got the funding, and this was after you know, several months of um, Baltimore City Health Department um, saying they wanted to apply for this, and a lot of community partners and um, organizations came to the table and said if they were going to apply for this funding, that it had to um, be led by the community. And so that was something that they said, okay, well, we have to apply for it, and we need to work with communities, then we'll oblige. I don't think they really knew what, <laughs> you know, how serious we were about that. Um, so over, you know, before we even applied for the funding, there were about 40 to 50 people showing up every week to uh, really think through what was trauma, right? Because when you're living in it, you're not saying, oh, I'm going through this traumatic experience and here are all the social determinants of health that, you know, are impacting me. You're just going through it. And so we like to look at, and we, one of the things that we really work on is, are we creating from a place that is reactive to, or are we creating from a place of what is this emerging future? Um, and that's something that I've, you know, Impact Hub has been really strong on is looking at what is this emergent future? What is this possibility that we can create from? And part of that um, discussion comes up when we look at inclusive and the word inclusive. So inclusive is a reaction to being excluded. And we don't want to create from being in reaction to. So one thing we look at is what does belonging look like? And so instead of inclusive, what does belonging look like in our coalition and the work that we do? Because belonging is a natural human need, right? So that's what I, I wanted to give that kind of context in terms of the way that we think about things and the way that we tend to move in our work. So we've given over $1.74 million in the past two years to hyper-local community organizations. Some of, those, some of these folks have never seen grant money, didn't know the process, um, have never been a part of the RFP process, and we pretty much looked at the health department and said, there's no way we're going to have community members fill out a 50-page grant document. Like, there's no way we're going to do that. And so we pushed back with them for about three months to change their process so that communities could have access to these funds. Um, another part of that was making sure that the, the folks who are applying for funding had at least 60% of their staff from the community. That's another challenge. So we were looking at what, what's possible for us to create. You know, what, what do we want this work to look like? And we were like, well, this work has never really been done the way that we're doing it, so let's try everything and let's do everything. And we had to push back with SAMHSA, although we had some allies there, had to push back with the health department, and we had some allies there. And ultimately, we, are, we have ensured that every part of the process was equitable. And so we talk about equity looking different in the investment world than it does in how we talk about community, but I think that's the, that's the problem. Because an equity holder has voting rights and has ownership. And if we talk about equity in community and they don't have voter rights and they don't have ownership, then we're not doing equity, period. So part of the grant process is that all of the people who have applied for grants have to present to the community what they will be doing, how they're going to measure it, 
So no program that's coming into our, into our community is not known by the community. And then the community then votes on who they want to get the funding. So every part of the process, the community has ownership and what comes into the community. And then even from that, folks who didn't get funded started to partner together because they realized they were doing complimentary work. Um, other folks who got funded were then able to apply for the youth fund. And these are folks who've never applied for any type of grant. They were now prepared and had the capacity to apply for youth fund and get funding. So we're seeing a lot of benefits from our work, just some organically, and we're working to make it more systematic, like how do we, and not scale necessarily, the, and, and we'll get to this question about scaling, but how, do, how does this look on, as an ecosystem, right? How do we scale the ecosystem? As I was listening to like all the panelists, one of the things that, that struck me is, you know, thinking about the youth fund and B-City, they're kind of these deep kind of community engagement and design around how do you use capital and funding to kind of build community wealth and, and kind of support communities. And when you think about the Opportunity Zone and, and Blueprint, right, like it's these huge systemic policy level kind of pieces that you're trying to figure out how do you take this benefit and how do you connect it back um, to, to community. And so the, the question does come up about scale, right? Like, is that scale, like, how do you do it from, like, the, the, the bottom up, right? But then how do you kind of think, like, top down and, and kind of connect it? But I want each of our panelists to go through and maybe spend about a minute or two just talking about, like, how do you kind of build scale? How do you approach that? But I also want to throw a reflection on what else are you kind of thinking about when you're doing this work? So I'll um, mention three things that, you know, we're looking at as it relates to opportunity zones and in both how we, you know, try to drive and facilitate this issue of, you know, building community wealth, uh, facilitating uh, investments that benefit and impact the community, but then also some of these like kind of blue sky ideas we're playing with too. So th the first thing is that, you know, we're really trying to be intentional with the Opportunity Zone strategy, both on who the investors are who we're engaging and working with, and then what the projects are that we're curating, right? And, and I often kind of joke when I'm at events like this around town that I'm kind of serving this match.com role for Opportunity Zone. So on the one hand, I'm working with this wild west market of opportunity funds out there that includes like the Anthony Scaramucci fund, you know, that wants to invest in big hotels and downtowns, right? So I haven't talked to the mooch. He's not like on our list. Um, but then like on the other side, it's, it's the curation. It's the pipeline. It's the projects. Because what's really tricky with this right now is that, you know, I think as, as Elise mentioned, a lot of these funds are like hanging their shingles, but they're raising capital, right? And they themselves, the funds, are going through this process of trying to raise capital. And in order for them to raise capital, they need to have a pipeline that they can show to their investors, which means that they need to come to me to then have a pipeline, right? So this first point that, that I want to make is that we are still very much in like the proof of concept phase on opportunity zones. There have been very few investments nationwide. There's been a couple here in Baltimore City, and we are one of the leading cities on this, right? And Blueprint's done a few in Texas, and there's a couple of other funds that have been doing some investments, but we're still at the early stages. And so for that purpose, kind of this, this first point is that in this match.com role I'm playing, on the one hand, 
you know, we want to be very careful in, in engaging the funds and the investors that get community and social impact, that get issues of equity doesn't have to be two different definitions. Um, you know, and, and those funds are out there. I mean, there are these social impact funds that are forming and that it, it's really interesting to see because I think one of the things Opportunity Zones is doing is that it's bringing a new type of investor and a new type of investment strategy to the table. One example I'll give is that there's a fund called the Catalyst Opportunity Fund, and they're actually working into their financial model several points on their IRR based on social impact, right? One of the things I, I want to just kind of point out in terms of how hard this is, most of these funds out there, they want to see at least a 10% IRR financial return over 10 years. That's a pretty big return for what we would call quote unquote, you know, below market projects. But you know what we're finding with some of these social impact funds is they're saying we want 10%, two of that percent is going to equal X number of jobs created in the local community or you know, a community governing board that's helped driving the project. And so I, I think that's kind of, those are the types of investors who we're looking to engage with and work with and bring into Baltimore. And on the flip side, you know, from the projects right now, we have to be a little opportunistic, right? Because funds are looking at, you know, uh, making investments this year to take advantage of that seven year reduction benefit. Um, and they want to see projects that are going to get the return and the impact. So we're, you know, really trying to be um, strategic in promoting projects across the 42 opportunity zones where, you know, the community's been engaged in the projects. They're projects that are going to get, you know, some level of return and they're going to have, you know, a significant impact. The final thing, which is like the blue sky idea is, can we in Baltimore be kind of like on the front lines in figuring out new ways to use opportunity zones to, to build, to really build community wealth? And so some of the you know, types of things we're looking at is um, crowdfunding. So we've got some folks who are doing that on can we, you know, work with some of kind of the, the crowdfunding experts out there to try to develop a community driven fund that can receive investments in $100, $200, $500 from folks in the community that can then invest in projects within the community. Um, secondly, can we you know, work with philanthropies, work with donors within Baltimore City to create opportunity funds that could be managed by nonprofit organizations where the nonprofits can receive basically capital gains as a gift or as a grant or as a donation and use those capital gains to invest in projects in the community and then get the return back and then reinvest into additional projects. So this is like tricky stuff. I've been talking to like the accounting firms and the attorneys and they all laugh at me when I raise these things. But, you know, there's a group of folks, um, you know, within Baltimore led by people like Venroy um, who are looking at these types of models. And, and these are things that we certainly want to try. Thank you. So when it comes to the Opportunity Zone, it's not only about the funds, but the projects as, as well and key. Yeah, I guess I'll just finish because you touched on kind of projects, maybe of bringing this to life. And, and I think a point on scale would be, I think it's difficult to think of one model that's going to be applicable to even any two zones, let alone kind of all the zones in the U.S. So I just caveat this all by saying these are very broad strokes of how we're thinking about bringing certain projects to life in the right way. And Ben's point's correct. It's still the jury's out. It's early days. But to give an example from what we've done in Texas, the first fund we've launched you know, I mentioned already starting first on building a local team. You know, the, the partner that we brought actually was David Robinson, the former NBA Hall of Famer, who actually since retiring has been extremely impactful, predominantly in the San Antonio area, but also the entire corridor up to Austin, 
There's a lot of credibility in the local community as well as a number of connections to the groups like some of the ones we're mentioning today that actually understand how to work with communities and figure out what the aligned goals are for what impact metrics should be. Um, so, you know, I think that's step one of building the right team that knows and cares. Step two would be meeting exactly to Candace's point before actually having a plan for what you're going to invest in. And this is particularly relevant to a lot of the real estate development that's happening right now. Before you create your master development plan, you need to be meeting with those local stakeholders in order to figure out it's also a good investment opportunity as well to figure out what there is demand for so that you have a lot of infill and a lot of tenancy rates in, an, in a short amount of time. So in Texas, meeting with the Austin Community Foundation, talking about actually East Austin, which actually is one of the historically areas with the most economic disparity actually from 1930s policy around redlining down in Austin. If you were born in East Austin, three miles west of the, the city center, or three miles to the east of the city center, your life expectancy is 10 years lower than if you were born three miles elsewhere. And one of the confounding factors of that is they actually don't have any primary care, healthcare facilities anywhere in the near vicinity of East Austin. So learning through some, some of those problems, also another tangential one was not access to fresh food. Um, so just hearing those demands and knowing that there is a community need for this type of infrastructure, then guided kind of phase three, which was create a plan that incorporates those needs. Um, we're putting in a community health and wellness center, using the network to bring in a community health clinic, as well as a grocery anchored um, tenant in some of the retail space. Very much what was driven by what was asked for by the community. And it's long-term going to be a good investment decision as well, which I think is long-term how this scales on, on a long-term for opportunity zones. The very final thing I would just say wrapping up on kind of everyone that spoke today of it's going to take collaboration to actually be transformative, not only from these funds, but it's going to have to be working with government that's setting the policy. It's going to have to be working with the communities that need to have buy-in and need to be supporting the ideas that you can invest in. And also alongside other nonprofits and programmatic support to make sure these are areas that can recruit and retain talent for jobs that come. It just takes a combination of those three sectors as well as the private capital that's coming in and putting money to work to make this successful and scalable. It's going to be buy-in from a number of disparate groups that often sometimes work in silos. And I think it's going to take just a breaking down of those silos for it to be scalable in a repeatable way. So. All right. Thank you. Just give a round of applause to all our panelists. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you're interested in learning more about Opportunity Zones, check out the show we did a few episodes ago with Rip Rapson and Aaron Seibert from the Kresge Foundation. For more about inclusive community development, we have another episode with Lucas Turner Owens and Aaron Tanaka from the Boston Ujima Project called Democratizing Community Development. As always, we'd love to hear from you, and you can reach us at Money and Meaning Podcast at gmail.com, or you can DM us on Twitter or Instagram at, at SoCap Markets. Uh, in two weeks, we'll have a new episode with Julie Mentor from New Media Ventures, where Lindsay sits down to talk to her about the intersection of, of entrepreneurship and democracy. So that should be a great conversation. So stay tuned, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.
You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.